Good morning. We've come now to our fourth session, our fourth session on how would Jesus vote. Remember, in our previous sessions, we have explained that it's not only the red letters of the Bible, the New Testament, that are applicable to this, but the whole Bible. The whole Bible is applicable to this subject because the whole Bible, according to 1 Peter 1.11, is written by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, according to the Apostle Peter. Now, in our fourth message, we are going to address this question, which relates to the purpose of government. What is the purpose of government? Or in other words, is it the government's job? Is it the government's responsibility to provide rationed peanut butter and diapers? Is it the job of the government to collect tax money from all of us and then to redistribute it like Marxism and communism, socialism, and all the other words used to describe fundamentally the same process. Is it the duty of the government to do this? That is the question. And we're going to be focused on Romans chapter 13, along with some cross-references. So please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. And as you're finding your way, we have some other uh, questions or issues to, to raise to stimulate our thinking on this subject. Um, is it the duty of the government to provide health care to all its citizens, to provide it, to be the channel of it? Or are they supposed to just withdraw from that issue and let the people do what they want and need to take care of themselves? Is it the government's duty to slaughter babies? Is it the government's duty to change the sex of children or adults, whether in, civil, in our um, society or in the military or wherever the government has influence, and even to promote that around the world? Is it the government's duty to do that? Is it the government's duty to provide education for us? Is it the government that is supposed to educate us? Does the government have a duty to establish media such as the public broadcasting station, PBS. Is it the government's duty to have things like that? What about libraries? We have city libraries, municipal libraries. Is it the government's duty to provide that? How about the postal service? Is it the government's responsibility to make sure that we receive junk mail, right? Is it the government's duty to do that? How about social security, social security? collecting taxes from all of us and providing a, a meager percentage of the taxes at the end of our life. Is it their responsibility? Are we supposed to expect them to do that on our behalf? Because social security is actually a misnomer. It's socialist insecurity. It's socialist insecurity. What about unemployment benefits? What about food? Like I said, with peanut butter. Are they supposed to provide things like that? rationed food to us so that we go to a certain facility, stand in line, um, receive food from them. What about also feeding the poor? Who is supposed to feed the poor? Who is supposed to provide for the poor? These are the questions that arise when we ask about the purpose of government. What we're going to find from Romans chapter 13, the fundamental point we are going to find in Romans 13 is that the purpose of government is to do the will of God. 
all governments, not only the U.S. government, not only Christian governments, but all governments worldwide, their duty, fundamental duty, is to do the will of God. And to that extent, they receive taxes from us to carry out that purpose. So then we must ask, what is the will of God? And that's what we will address. Their fundamental duty is to do the will of God. Romans 13, Romans 13, and we'll read the whole chapter. Our focus will be the first part of it. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us, therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. In verse 1, we see here that every person, that is, he's writing to the Roman Christians, Jew and Gentile alike in Rome, everyone, as well as the church generally, he expects to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Well, who is the governing authority at the time the apostle writes? Is it not the Roman government, the Roman Empire, the Caesars of the time? Is this not who is in power? Do these people believe in Jesus Christ? No. Do these people acknowledge the word of Christ? No. These people are not saved people, and yet he says 
that they should be in subjection to the governing authorities. And if that applies to the Romans, and we have examples throughout Scripture, why will it not also apply to us? It certainly does apply to us to be in subjection to the governing authorities. However, the problem we find today, especially this year, in the year 2020, is that many people misinterpreting, distorting, twisting, undermining this passage of Scripture have interpreted this passage to mean that there must be blind subjection to the governing authorities. So that whatever they dictate to us, whatever they mandate to us, whatever they expect of us, we should do. And all, they all in not only in major ways, like close your business, but also in petty ways, such as you cannot sing in church, you cannot bring your Bible, you cannot serve communion, you cannot baptize anyone, so on and so forth. And then regulating who can meet and how we can meet in particular ways. This is all not scriptural. It undermines scripture and it contradicts many, many aspects and principles of the Bible. This is not what is intended here. To illustrate this fact, we note that in Acts 25, verse 11, the Apostle Paul was before the Roman governing authority. The Apostle Paul was before Festus, the Roman authority. And in this context, he is unjustly presented before him because of the animosity and jealousy of the Jews who want the Apostle Paul put to death. The Apostle Paul put to death. Now, Paul the Apostle illustrates here that he did not mean blind obedience to whatever the government dictates or wants to do. In this context, Festus, he actually wants to please the Jews because Paul is just one man, but the Jews, they are a company of people. That's a group of people, a large population in that region of the Roman Empire. He wants to give, make peace and make peace with them so that there's no uproar and mayhem going on in his area of the Roman Empire. So he would like to fulfill the wishes of the Jews to have Paul executed. However, the apostle, Acts 25, verse 10, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. I do not refuse to die, but if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. The apostle Paul is objecting to the Jews' desire to have him put to death. And he says in verse 11, if, if, that's a conditional statement, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. He says, anything worthy of death, taken from the law of Moses, this is a mosaic expression, worthy of death. If I have done anything worthy of death, I will not refuse to die. I know I will deserve the death penalty, so go ahead and execute me. 
That's his point. However, if there is no basis among the Jews in cons uh, conspiracy with the Romans to put him to death, he says he's objecting. He says here, but if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. What is Paul doing? He is not blindly, gullibly listening to whatever the Jews and the Romans want. He's using his mind. Why? Because there is a higher authority, and that's what he's acting upon. If the Romans contradict the Bible, if the Jews contradict the Bible, if the American government contradicts the Bible, any government contradicts the Bible, we're supposed to follow God even though they are the governing authorities. Obey God rather than men, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. This is the procedure we should follow. This is the obvious procedure that we should follow. Only those people, those Christians even, I use the word Christian in the sense of nominal Christian, those Christians who say we ought to follow whatever the dictates are of the government because they are the governing authority. Romans 13. Romans 13 has been bandied about like a cliche as a silencer, as a way to silence any opposition to doing what's right in the sight of God. We cannot do that. We cannot do that. That is not the purpose of government, to dictate to the Christian what the Christian knows to be right and true according to the word of God. Obey the government to the extent that they are consistent with Scripture. The moment they contradict Scripture, we must follow God rather than men. Is that not what the Hebrew midwives did? The government expected them to murder the babies, the Hebrew male children, right? They did not do so. Is that not what Daniel the prophet did? He resisted when the, his officials or his um, peers in the government of Persia were wanting to incite a rebellion or an execution of Daniel because he was worshiping God. They were trying to find fault with him, and then he refused to obey that temporary mandate. Daniel refused to follow the temporary law or mandate to worship the king. And even the king knew that that was right for Daniel. He was so sorry that his own officials conspired against Daniel. And Daniel refused to do so. So this is the proper understanding of passages such as Romans 13. And by the way, since when have Christians said everything the government says is good and right? How did that mentality arise? It has not been in Christianity for 2,000 years. There is no evidence in church history for that. It, this arises because we have been brainwashed, or I say brain dirtied, into thinking in a very totalitarian, tyrannical way. This is the way that our education has been. This is the way that many churches have been. This is the wrong way to think about our relationship to the government. We respect them. We honor them. We do whatever is right. We are law-abiding citizens. But when they cross the line, we should not follow them because they have, a, they have no authority from God. Now, you may say, from God to do the will of God? 
Well, yes, the Apostle Paul emphasizes this point. In verse 1, Romans 13, verse 1, after saying that we should be obeying or in subjection, he says, for or because there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. At verse 2, therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And also in verse 4, for it, the government, is a minister of God. And verse 4, for it is a minister of God. He clearly teaches us that the government exists because of the will of God. So if they exist under the authority of God, then they must do God's will. They must do God's will. Whether they are Christian or not, it doesn't matter. They must do God's will. Just as the, um, the many examples we have in the Bible prove this and show this, right here he is establishing this very doctrine. He's explaining it very clearly here. So if they are to do the will of God, where and how can we um, establish what the will of God is? Where can we find where, where the will of God is? Well, we have two sources. We have the written word of God, and then we also have the unwritten word of God or the law written in the heart. We saw in a previous session from Romans chapter 2, 14 to 16, that even unbelievers, the Gentiles, have the unwritten law, not printed on pages, but it's unwritten or spiritually or metaphorically speaking, written in the heart, in the human heart. They know that when they bow down before an image, an idol, that it is lifeless, it is dead, and it does not answer their prayers. They know that. They know that they should not dishonor their parents. In fact, in many cultures, there is the honor of parents much more than there is here in the United States. They know that. It's embedded. It's innate in their conscience, according to Romans 2, 14 to 16, things like that. They know it's wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to commit adultery. They know it's wrong to steal and lie and perjure. They know those things. They all know that. So if they all know that, then we should live up to that expectation. Now, a part of that in recent days has to do with forbidding Christians from worshiping as though you're going to die, as though you're going to die if you meet to worship. That's false. It's a complete lie. You're not going to die if you meet to worship. Why is it that we haven't heard of people dying of anything else recently? Why is it that we haven't heard that? Are people only dying based on the Wuhan flu? Are they only dying for that reason? In fact, the way the media has portrayed all this, trying to undermine this will of God, they tried to say that the only racism that is a white police officer murdering an innocent black boy walking down the street. That's the image that they are portraying. And that's one reason why people die. Another reason why people die in the year 2020, only two reasons, is the Wuhan flu. For no other reason do people die. We don't hear the reports all the time, do we? 
Can we not see that these people are lying? They have no desire to do the will of God. And what is a part of that will of God? The fourth commandment, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, and let us learn to stimulate one another to love in good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but all the more as you see the day drawing near. They are causing us, tempting us to undermine that commandment. And we're not supposed to do it. We need to be encouraged. Even if there is a plague, we need to be encouraged in the midst of the plague. What about eternal life? What about people who have fear, irrational fear, and preaching eternal life to these people to trust in God, to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? What about doing that? And the most important time, the most important day of the week to do that is in public worship when you are gathered on the Lord's day. Because it's not very often and convenient to do that on other days, but to have a clear 30 minutes, 45 minutes, one hour message focused on the Bible and a call and an encouragement to believe in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that happens on the Lord's day. The Chinese communists know that, the Democrat Party knows that, and even some fake Republicans know that. All people know that, and that's why they are very willing to undermine this very Lord's Day and the preaching of the Word of God, forbidding us to bring Bibles, to sing songs, and so on and so forth in our worship services. This is devilish, and Christians must understand that Romans 13 does not grant them those abilities. Romans 13 actually says the very opposite, that the government should be supporting the will of God in terms of the Ten Commandments. Now, you might say, how do we know it's the Ten Commandments? How do we know even the Apostle Paul means that? Well, I cited Romans 2, but look here even in our context, Romans 13, 8 to 10. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. We are to love our neighbor, and notice which commandments he cites in order to illustrate. And he even said, if there is any other commandment. So the ones he cites, adultery, murder, theft, and covetousness, they're not the only ones. But he illustrates with these. And he says that if there is any other, this is what we should obey. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. So if this is the case in this context, then he obviously means that there is a relationship between society, government, the Christian church, and us all fulfilling this love your neighbor as yourself commandment. There is a relationship. They are not devoid or separate from one another. They are in this same chapter, in the same context. And then when those commandments are rejected, disobeyed, either because of government edicts, government policies, government laws, there are unjust, wicked laws, 
If those are, under, are implemented or even righteous laws are undermined, then what happens? Verses 11 and 14, we have illustrated, especially in verse 13. We have carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, and jealousy, which also is an illustrative list. It's not a complete, exhaustive list. So he's saying we should not be practicing this as Christians. We should love our neighbor as ourselves, which includes the role of the government in helping Christians to love our neighbor as ourselves. Therefore, the government should do the will of God, and we Christians should expect them to do the will of God. Let's go back up to verse 3. Verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We're not supposed to fear the government for good behavior. Right. Well, then let's define what is good behavior. Is good behavior to be defined by any government official or one scientist? Is that the way we're supposed to define government behavior or good behavior among the citizens in the perspective of the government? No. Who would say that? Who would actually believe that good behavior is to be defined by governments. And then if that is the case, what if the municipal government contradicts the state government? And what if the state government contradicts the federal government? And then what if the federal government contradicts God? How are we to decide what is good behavior? God, God's word. The word of Christ. Christ, whatever Christ says from Genesis to Revelation, that's how we know what is good behavior. Not by a whimsical mandate, whimsical edicts, whimsical laws, laws that are even pernicious for our Christian life and for human life, generally speaking. No, that's not the definition that we should be seeking. We should be seeking God's definition of good behavior. So good behavior would be not murdering, not stealing, not avoiding the Sabbath day, not worshiping idols, so on, so forth, right? That would be good behavior. And to the extent that we are fulfilling that, then fine, we should not be afraid of the government. But if the government misunderstands or if the government perverts, the government distorts, the true meaning of Scripture, then what should we do? Just like the Hebrew midwives, Exodus chapter 1, just like in the case of Daniel the prophet, Daniel chapter 6, 
just like the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 25, and many, many scriptural examples, Old and New Testament examples. If they say something is evil behavior, contrary to the Bible, we ought to resist. But when they are acting based on good behavior according to the will of God in the Bible, then yes, we go along with it. That this is why we should have either praise or fear, based on a true definition of what is good and what is evil. And then further in verse 4, it says, It is a minister of God, um, and it does not bear the sword for nothing. It does not bear the sword for nothing. Why does the government have the power, according to God, to wield the sword? Well, because of two reasons. One is domestic criminals, and two, foreign enemies. Domestic and foreign, because we have nations who are always at war with another nation, so there must be a, a military that is prepared to defend one's own nation against foreign nations. And also when their spies infiltrate our country, they ought to be aware of that and fight against it. This is why they bear the sword, to protect the citizens of one's own nation. Another reason is a, a more domestic reason. That is, in our cities and states, wherever, the government is supposed to punish criminals. Punish criminals. An avenger who brings wrath, meaning wrathful punishment, upon the one who practices evil. So when criminals do things against law-keeping citizens, law-abiding citizens, the duty of the government is to punish those criminals. Whatever the process is, based on witnesses and evidence, it is to be the government that punishes criminals. We should expect them to do that. And that assumes that they have a sense of justice, that they have a sense of righteousness and justice, and we should expect them, demand them, insist upon them to do this very thing. So when they are not protecting us from foreign enemies and from domestic criminals, they are giving up, they are abdicating their God-given duty right here to bear the sword. They must bear the sword for that. Not to persecute Christians, not to harass Christians, but to support Christians, which we will see next time in the next message from 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 7, that the government's purpose is to support the work of the Christian church. Furthermore, we have asked the question about the role of government in raising our taxes to such an extent that they take our tax money and when it is excessive tax money, then it becomes theft, and then they use the money they steal from us to give to others in the name of helping humanity, in the name of helping the downtrodden, in the name of helping the poor. They actually take more from us than they should. Yes, even the middle class, lower middle class. They take from us, and then they give it 
after they, after through a, a process of corruption, because if they take $100 from us, $100 is not going to feed the poor. A lot of that money goes in the administration. Some of it goes in their back pocket. Some of it goes elsewhere, uh, a, a big, black, deep hole. We never see it. And then some of it goes to the poor. And then when it goes to the poor, what happens to the poor? They end up being leeches on the government, and they don't overcome their circumstances. Now, is that loving? It's unjust to take money, more money from us than is right. It is right for them to take. We read that in a, a couple of times in verses 6 and 7, Romans 13, 6 and 7. It's right for them to take some, but when they take it like that in excess and give to people who have no concern to change their circumstances, to change their livelihood, and then they become leeches and rodents feasting off of the government, that is wrong. It's not helping them. It's unloving to them as individuals. It's unloving to them as families. And it's unloving to us. It's unloving to all who are trying to work hard and live a quiet life and raise their families and go to church. It's unloving and unjust when that happens. Now, am I saying this? Am I saying this as a matter of human opinion? No. The Bible expects all of us to work. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. So, Thieves should not steal anymore. They should labor with their own hands, with good labor, doing what is good, not wicked labor like dealing drugs or, or going to the casino and then saying, hey, look, I have all this money. No, not like that, but with good labor, with their own hands, in order to have something to share with him who has need. If you have the ability to work, then work. And then when you have a surplus, help an actually needy person, he says. So work. How about 2 Thessalonians 3.10? 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. The Apostle Paul gives instruction in this chapter primarily for those who are busybodies and who are getting income, getting food, getting provisions from others without working, and he calls it living an unruly life. So by verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, the example of parents, 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Here, for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. Now he explains himself. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents 
for their children. Parents are responsible to save up for their children. Now, in this context, what he means is, if you are parents and you have children in your home, you're supposed to work, you're supposed to accumulate income, and you're supposed to save up for the benefit of your children to raise them in your home. He doesn't say, go to the church. He doesn't say, go to the government. He doesn't say, steal, loot, pillage, riot. He doesn't say that. He says that they're supposed to save up. The parents are supposed to save up by working hard for their own children. Now, what about if we have adults who are in dire need? What if we have adults in dire need? Let's consider the widow. Let's consider the widow. First Timothy, First Timothy chapter 5, First Timothy chapter 5, in verses 1 to 16, 1 to 16, the Apostle Paul is dealing with this subject of widowhood, and typically widows, since their husbands have passed away, and the husbands are primarily the ones who work and bring income to the family, they would naturally begin to experience some poverty, some need, some poverty and some need. Unless, of course, there is a, a big inheritance or, or something like that. But typically, this is what happens. Widows, when they lose their husbands, have a need, sometimes a great need. So then, what should we do if there is that circumstance? 1 Timothy 5, verse 4 says, If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them... First, learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. When we have a widow, who should help the widow? The widow's own children or grandchildren? They should help. It does not say church. It does not say state. It says children or grandchildren, first help. Then it says in verse 7, 7 and 8, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He's talking about the children and the grandchildren who refuse to help their own widows. He's saying that you should now be prepared to help your elderly mother in this way. And if you do not do so, then you deny the faith and you are worse than unbelievers. Because unbelieving people, speaking of the law written in the heart, even unbelieving people who worship idols, even many of them, the vast majority of them, know to take care of their own. How is it that we who profess Christ don't realize that, is his point. So we are worse than unbelievers. Then, in this scenario, there are young widows and then there are old widows. And he has certain requirements in verses 9 and following. 9 and following, certain requirements as to when the church should help a widow. When should a church help the widow? 
Verse 9, let a widow be put on the list, meaning the church list for support, only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, and thus incurring condemnation, because they have set aside their previous pledge. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them, and let not the church be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So if the age requirement is met, and if the godliness requirement is met of the widows, then the church should help. Do we find anything here about the government as the first source of help? Or even as one source of help? Nothing. It's children, grandchildren, and then church. And if the widow is a young widow, especially if she's wanton, if she's just indulging in pleasures as a young widow, she needs to be told to repent Get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Now, will the government teach any wayward individual, man or woman, old or young, will the government teach that wayward individual anything like this? No. So the handouts, the welfare is dished out to them, stolen from us, dished out to them, they have no expectations of rectifying their behavior, sinful, even criminal behavior, no expectations of them rectifying it, becoming upright citizens, diligent, productive citizens, and even those who benefit their own families and churches, no expectations, and those people continue to live in their wanton pleasure. Have you ever seen in the United States so many poor people who are overweight? Have you ever seen that in history, anywhere else in the world? It's very rare for that to happen. Why does that happen? Because we're not teaching them. We're not expecting them. Because we have not insisted that it's wrong, it's sinful, it's evil for the government to do things that they're not supposed to do according to the will of God. They're not supposed to do it. Remember in the book of Ruth, who was Ruth? She was a foreigner, right? And then she came to live in the land of Judea. And when she came to live in the land of Judea as a widow, remember her husband died. What was it that she did? Remember, she's a godly woman. What was it that she did? Did she go around as a beggar? Did she go around to the government office? Did she go to the elders and, and insist, I have my rights my rights of health care, my rights of food and clothing, my rights of housing. Did she go there and say anything and do anything like that? No. She found a field, the field of Boaz. She found a field, and she began laboring in that field. 
just as it's teaching us here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If people are capable of working, do not give them anything. Don't give them a penny. If they are cap healthy, capable of working, do not give them a penny. That's the teaching of Scripture. This is not a human opinion. This is the teaching of God's Word. And then one more clarification we need to make. Often we find that in the rhetoric, both Christian rhetoric and societal rhetoric, in the media and elsewhere, in education and government, that the poor automatically are worthy of our compassion. The poor are automatically worthy of our compassion, our goods, our, our produce, our money. They are automatically supposed to get special favor, merely and simply because they are poor. Whatever the definition of poor is, they think, they teach us that that's our attitude toward them. There are genuinely poor people. That does actually happen. And when that happens, we should be ready to help them. But is it true that automatically, if one is categorized as poor, that we should help? No. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 17. Isaiah 9, 17. The prophet, by the word of the Lord, says, Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer. God himself has no pity on whom? The young men, the orphans, and the widows. Why? Why in this circumstance does he have no pity, no compassion, no mercy on them? For every one of them is godless and an evildoer. It depends on what's happening. It depends on their circumstances and why they are poor, why they are the way they are. Notice also in Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah 6, 13. Jeremiah 6, 13. Jeremiah is also preaching punishment by the word of Christ. 6, 13. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Because of their wickedness too, he says he's going to inflict punishment. And who's included? The least of them, which means the lowest in, in ranks in society, the lowest ranks of society because of their poverty or whatever their circumstance in the lower classes of society. He's saying the least even to the greatest. I'm done with all of them because they're all wicked and I'm going to punish them which is what he repeats in chapter 8, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10. Therefore, I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. In this punishment, 
God is going to kill the men and then their surviving widows he's going to give to foreigners who are going to forcefully marry them. And their fields he's going to give to the foreigners, to the wicked, idolatrous foreigners. And who's included here? The least, even to the greatest. And their sin, everyone is greedy for gain. Therefore, we should not have a predisposition. The moment we see a poor man, we, we should not say, therefore, I need to pull out something from my pocket and give. Or if there is some organization or even the government that says, we need to help the poor and this is what we're going to do. We have to examine how are they going to help? What are they going to do? How did this man come into his circumstance, his meager and miserable condition? How did he become that way? Is he a drunkard? Then don't give him money. If, is he a drug addict? Then don't give him money. We need to preach repentance and help him along with his repentance so that he doesn't resort to his sin and ruin not only himself, but his family with fake and false methods of compassion. That's not compassion. It's not compassion to give money to a drunkard. No, it's compassion to teach him to repent and believe in the gospel and then to help him along, if he's willing to receive your help, help him along to overcome his drunkenness. That is true compassion. So what is the purpose of government? Do the will of God. Not invented, not imagined, or reimagined by human, frail, wicked human thoughts, but by Scripture. What does the Word of God say is the role of government? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, in the midst of so much confusion, so much rhetoric, it is very easy to be deceived and very easy to think that we ought to do whatever the vast majority of people are saying. But teach us, Lord, to have self-control, to have discernment, true knowledge, based on the Scriptures. And grant us, Lord, the bravery we need to act based on the truth of your word. May we not care what the world says, but may we care what you say. May we never be ashamed of you, but always do your will. Teach us, Lord, this, and grant us the power we need to fulfill your word unto eternal life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.